morning. We get to open the scriptures today. Who's excited? And as you heard, as Larry read, it's a really exciting passage full of happy, joy, joy, happy, joy, joy. Uh, I am grateful to be able to teach God's Word this week. Uh, at the same time, I'm going to be utterly and completely honest, this passage kicked my butt. Uh, one of the reasons for that was because I didn't realize how much I personally identified with Simon. And so you're going to hear about this, and some of you are going to be like, man, that pastor's sinful. Yes, I am. And so I just want you to be prepared for that. I really do love being part of a community where there are multiple teachers within the community because as last week we got to hear from Bishop, I mean Pastor Mike, it was very exciting to hear him teach God's Word and bring his voice to a passage that is long. I mean, Stephen, as I call him's sermon, is quite long, and Mike did a great job. And for me personally, it's wonderful because it reminds me that I'm a sheep. I'm a sheep? Yep, some of you guys remember. The reality is that we're all sheep under the care of the great shepherd. And so I got to experience God's blessing of God teaching me through Mike's tone. I also got a break from studying and putting together a sermon for us. And contrary to popular belief, us pastors don't only work on Sundays, just so you know. It takes a lot of work to put a passage or to put a sermon together. Today we cover another passage that I love, not because it's easy to preach. There is some tough stuff in this theologically, but because it's hard, and I never want us to be a church that ignores the tough stuff, because it's in this difficult passages, in the tough stuff that isn't easy to digest, that we see more of a complete picture of who God is, the one we worship and adore. Today, we will do a little less verse by verse and read a little bit more of a narrative of what happened with this deacon named Philip, some of the apostles, and a guy named Simon. So let's go. Chapter 8, starting in verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowd heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. The apostles and the deacons, the believers, they were scattered and they were spreading the gospel ever since Stephen's proclamation and martyring, which we studied last week. Philip, one of the seven chosen deacons in the church, which we studied two weeks ago, was now traveling and proclaiming the gospel to all who would hear. Philip went to Samaria, a place with Samaritans. Imagine that. A Samaritan was someone who was not fully Jewish or was a half-blood, if you will. Jesus spoke about this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he told the apostles to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But this was a big deal because Philip saw that everyone was in need of the gospel. Now, here's the thing about the gospel, the good news. The reason that we get here is because we want to talk about the gospel personified, who is Jesus Christ, and the gospel transcends political economical, racial, and gender lines. The gospel, the good news of Jesus' grace found in the perfect life lived, the sacrificial death and the victorious resurrection from the dead of Jesus, is a Christian's sole means of being right with God. And this is something that can and should be shared with any and everyone. I know for most of us, we'd love to see evil dictators be taken out in some way. Huh? Huh? I get it. 
But what we don't understand is that spiritually, we're all evil. We're all broken. We're all in need of grace that can save us. And so I pray that we would be a people who think towards eternity and not just in the here and now because people don't know Jesus. They know his name. They yell his name when they stub their toe, but they don't know him. And knowing Jesus isn't a religion, and it sure as heck isn't a political stance. It is reconciliation with the creator of our being, and we ought to focus more on where people stand with Jesus than anything else. In this polarized world, only the gospel of grace can save anyone. So Philip had performed miracles that confirmed his connection to the apostles laying on of hands and the Holy Spirit using him to proclaim the word while many listened, the text says, intently to what he said. Impure spirits were, feeling, were fleeing people in the presence of Philip, and many were healed of their physical handicaps. And great joy broke out in the city because God was at work and he was intervening. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit used Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, to document what was happening to Philip, but then he shows contrast of what was going to take place with this guy named Simon. And we'll see a different motivation and even a power, a different power that are leading and guiding Simon rather than Philip. Verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Okay, here's the thing about this man who is creatively referred to as Simon the Sorcerer. He's being described as someone who is evil and unwilling to follow Jesus. But as we will read, he, like a lot of us, have done very similar things that we have done in this room and perhaps even point back to when we're attempting to justify ourselves spiritually. But Luke is about the facts. And the facts are that the Simon guy practiced sorcery and amazed all the people of Samaria. While boasting about himself, people took notice. While saying that he was the great power of God, even, he even said that he was someone great. Wow! Is this something that people do? Where they describe themselves as super important and explain their qualifications and document their good deeds? Oh wait, Simon had social media. Didn't see that coming, huh? Huh? And Simon is one of my favorite and least favorite individuals in all of Scripture. Why? Because in my flesh, I, without meaning to, am exactly like this guy. I want people to think I'm someone great. I want people to believe I have some special relationship with God. Anyone know who Adam West is? Okay, you'll understand this reference. I want people to think I have the bat phone to God. Huh? Huh? Okay. Yes, there you go. If you have to explain it, it wasn't a good reference. My bad. <laughs> but man, is it dangerous to be that self-exalting. It's dangerous to be anti what the Scriptures teach about what a Christian actually is. Now, while speaking in a parable about God's grace and how it is undeserved favor which is given at the discretion of the gift giver, Jesus ends a parable in Matthew 20, verse 16, he says this, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Meaning those who want to get ahead in this life by any means necessary will be last in the kingdom. 
But those of us who think of others as more important than themselves will be exalted in the next life. But this doesn't come from not trying to get ahead. This comes from caring for others ahead of yourselves. And this isn't something that we do naturally, or at least it's not me. I'm sure you all do it easily. But Simon was ordinary in the sense that he was doing what our sinful nature does, making things about him, caring about how he was seen, wanting the attention and praise to be turned towards him. This man was actually being identified as the power of God, something that was actually rightly who the Holy Spirit is, as Jesus said in the much-quoted verse at the beginning of Acts, and I'm going to need some participation. Jesus says, but you will receive power. Say power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses, what does a witness do? Testify in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Simon was identifying himself as God, which is truly blasphemy to the highest degree. This is the problem with a false faith, a counterfeit faith. It exalts charisma over the Christ. It celebrates personality of an individual over the God that they are supposedly supposed to represent. Sometimes this is the main objective of a person. Sometimes this becomes something that happens over time. I've shared this before. This is not new. I personally struggle with pride. I'm an only child. No offense to you only children, but it's specifically one of the things that I struggle with. And this passage, this messes me up. Because usually in my pride, I don't identify with anyone because, well, I'm too prideful to think that I'm like anyone else. I'm special. My mommy told me. But I look at my ministry over the past many years, and I look at how it began and the people that I was around and the people that I wooed and the people that I influenced and the way that I became known for making much of Jesus and his resurrection, and so people would make much of me, and I liked it. The problem with wanting to be made much of is that it takes away from the message of the gospel. The gospel isn't about us, church. We might be included in God's redemptive work. We're trophies of grace, but we did none of it, uh, to paraphrase Jonathan Edwards, other than contribute the sin that made Jesus' sacrifice necessary. That's what we did. The Bible doesn't point to charisma. It points to a Christ in all things from Genesis to Revelation. And I am not the Christ. I'm not perfect in my flesh. I'm in desperate need of holy intervention from a perfect Savior who knows me at my worst and doesn't say, well, sorry, bro, you're not good enough, but instead says, no one is good enough but God. So God will sacrifice himself and trade his life for ours. He died so that we could live, church. He'll defeat death and then superimpose his victory upon us. And the gospel, if we truly believe it, it is, if it has truly made a difference, if our eyes have been opened to grace, it means we don't have to hide our true selves anymore. God doesn't save a photoshopped version of us. God doesn't need us to clean ourselves up to come to him. God doesn't miss anything out about us, as if we could outsin his grace, and we think if he only knew such and such sin, he'd never extend undeserved favor to us. Trust me, he knows about such and such sin. And he does know us at our worst. And that is who he saves, not a more sanctified version of us. 
Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know why my heart rate's so high. I think it's because this is important. And if God saves us in spite of our past sin, he continues to extend grace to our present and future sin as well. So do not fall into the lie that because you still sin, God's grace didn't take. The difference, as Paul points out in Romans 6, is that we do not have to live in our sin any longer because there is a better way. There is a Holy Spirit who now can lead us and guide us through his word. So if the gospel really makes sense, how can we possibly take credit for it? How can we think we earned any of it? How can we want the attention and praise to go to us? Paul says in Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, I mean, I do this. And I expect grace to increase. And I act as if I deserve forgiveness and grace and mercy. But Paul answers his own question in verse 2. He says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This doesn't say that we don't sin. It says that those who identify with Jesus Christ no longer have to live in that sin, meaning that sin is no longer our only option. Lorelai's softball coach uh, was at her game the other day on Monday and was limping, and I asked her what happened, and she said, I sprained my ankle, and I said, doing what? And she said, just living life. Sin before Christ is our only option because sin is not an itemized checklist of do's and don'ts. It's a heart condition that doesn't acknowledge and identify Jesus as preeminent. And I know I do this more than I ought to. So in Christ, we get to live with the ability to exalt Jesus, not ourselves. We get to view others as more important than ourselves. We get to proclaim the gospel of grace and the message of the cross and the empty tomb rather than do religion where our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. Because one, they never do. And two, how would you even know if they ever did? I much prefer knowing that my salvation is not reliant on me deserving it or even keeping it, but it is found in and rooted in what Jesus has already accomplished in my place. This is why what Simon was doing and propagating was evil and the opposite of what the true power of God, the third person of the Trinity, God himself, the Holy Spirit, does in believers, which is to always exalt the Christ over charisma. Many followed Simon, the text says, because he amazed them with his sorcery. The traveling magic show, which was Simon's ministry, is one that unfortunately has been in the church ever since, where people follow a person and their teaching over the truth of the scriptures. Religions all over the world have preachers and priests and rabbis and gurus and leaders who instead of teaching the way to God, which is Jesus, they decide that you need them personally their ministry, their words, in order to come to God, they insert themselves as mediator or as a spiritual broker. 
False faiths believe you need a mediator to come to God rather than God came to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But here's the problem with this. It's a wonderful trick of the enemy. We as humans, just so you know, we're worshipers. Even if you don't like to stand and sing or raise your hands or get jiggy with it or whatever, I shouldn't ever quote Will Smith anymore. Anyway, we want a flesh and blood mediator between us and God. And if we can't touch or see him, then it's hard for us to believe in something that we cannot see. Yet faith is not in a spiritual ghost in Jesus, but in a historical figure who did the impossible. He lived the perfect life that we can't. He died the death that we should have died. And he physically and victoriously rose from the dead. And it is this resurrection that we celebrate every Easter and every week at Church of the Valley, hopefully. That we have faith in God who did the impossible because it's through the evidence of the resurrection from the dead that we place our trust in Jesus who we cannot see and whom we love. Let's see if the Bible backs me up. Romans 10.9. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Peter the Apostle says in 1 Peter chapter 1, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Christians have had this faith in the risen king ever since the third day when he came out of the grave. And the resurrection means that we do not have to be about us. And we can be all about him, the gospel personified, who is Jesus Christ. Here's where, I here's where as I studied and not only noticed that in my past I have identified with Simon, but I also started to see the redeeming reality of seeing that God is doing a work in me and you now. Christianity is about the Christ fully, completely, and always. We got called, I was talking to somebody a while ago, and they're like, you're a Jesus church. And I was like, we better be. But we want to complicate the idea that Christianity is all about the Christ, don't we? We want something more, like a Gnostic of old. We want some special revelation. We want to crack the code. We want the message to make more sense to us than someone else. And so we add all these expectations to the message. Cults will say things like, you have to go through me to be saved, or be baptized in our water, or give X amount of money to the church, or do all of these moral things to prove your devotion to God, and the gospel opposes all of that. Because in the gospel, the only justification that is necessary or even possible is simply this. Are you ready? I'm with Jesus. That's it. That's all we got, church. I'm with Jesus. I know him. I love him. That's it. When I stand before the Father with the reality of all the sin that I've ever done, I cannot justify myself without just pointing to Jesus and saying, Lord, I'm with him. I'm often prone to wander and fail. I'm often to find my justification in what I've done or what I've said, but Jesus is it. 
That's the simple message of, let me give you some big theological words, justification, righteousness, salvation. The gospel saves and the gospel is Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and what he is doing. And what is Jesus doing now? He's transforming people more into his likeness over time, circumstance, and obedience to his word. Not as justification, but because justification has its root in the gospel, the fruit is spiritual transformation. And so what I've begun to realize is that Christianity, being a Christian, being redeemed eternally, and having Jesus' good works superimposed upon our lives through faith in Him alone means that I can be honest with the people around me. I can be honest that I don't have it all figured out. I can pursue Christ and invite others along with me. Check it. I can make disciples of Jesus rather than me. Years ago, I stood up here during a sermon. Actually, I was staying down there. And I confessed a sin during my sermon. I know that's rare for me. It was nothing juicy, okay? I think I, was, I got angry at someone on the road. Ooh, I'm sure I'm the only one, you bunch of saints. But I noticed that there was this woman who, after that week, stopped attending pretty soon, right after I preached. About six months later, I saw her again on a Sunday, and I talked to her after service, and I asked, hey, like, haven't seen you in a while. What happened? And she said, well, the last time I was here, you confessed a sin, and I didn't want to be under a pastor that was sinful. Okay, I thought. So what happened? She said, well, it turns out you're not the only pastor who's sinful. You're just more willing to admit it. (laughs) Guys, don't put your faith in me. Do not put your faith even in this church body of believers here at COV. I love this congregation. Billy Crystal reference, you look marvelous. This is a very exciting people group. It's a very exciting period in our church to be able to be a part of what God's doing here. But faith in anything but Jesus just leaves you unsatisfied in this life and eternally separated from God in the next. We want to be a church that meets and gathers around knowing the gospel and living in the truth of this message. That means we will do specific things as a church that emphasize the gospel. And check this out. Sometimes we won't do things that people think churches ought to do because it doesn't emphasize the gospel in the way that we attempt to focus on. We never intended to be one-stop shop for all things spiritual as a church. That's Bucky's in Texas, okay? Not a church, it's a gas station. Never mind. We intend to be gospel-centered unapologetically no matter what. But look at the text. Look at how it takes a turn, not in the narrative, but in the assumptions of what is really happening here. Because on the surface, it seems like Luke is going to point out that Simon has done what many in the Christian church would also point as something they've done. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by his great signs and miracles that he saw. The gospel was being proclaimed through Philip, this Greek-speaking Jewish deacon, and many were believing in Christ. Many of these men and women who believed were also baptized, including Simon, who Luke says specifically believed and was baptized, and then followed Philip around and was astonished at the signs and wonders that he performed. Why is this a big deal? 
Because Simon believing and being baptized is what many people since Jesus' resurrection have pointed to as their justification. Well, I believed. Well, I was baptized. In fact, depending on what the tradition of Christianity perhaps you were raised in, all that whatever was expected of you was to believe one time and to identify that belief in baptism. This, while having some truth to it, we'll get to that, is where I think the Christian church has overemphasized a work and de-emphasized life change. Believing is not a work, but believing as in acknowledging something rather than believing as intended allegiance to something are two different things. And when you just acknowledge something, it just doesn't make any difference to you. But when you intend allegiance, it means because of your belief, you now change how you see something and how you live because of that belief. Baptism, because of an acknowledging belief, becomes a work that we point to as our justification. I don't know how many times I've been called at the church being asked for some baptism certificate to justify somebody. But baptism has never been meant to save us. Jesus did not live, die, and rise again, so we would then have to earn our own salvation. Baptism is a symbol and opportunity to illustrate our identity, which is found in what Christ has accomplished. But ever since I became a Christian, people have pointed to their baptism intentionally or not as the moment that they were saved, which isn't correct. If that is true, if we have to do something to be saved, it isn't grace through faith, but grace through works, and that is in direct conflict with the gospel. So why bring this up? Because Simon believed and was baptized. And if that is what we believe justification is, then, well, we disagree on Simon. And so does Luke. And so does Peter, as we'll see in just a few moments. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit did not come upon any of them yet. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is confusing, and yet important for us to know. The Holy Spirit was yet to come to the Samaritans, and so Peter and John, who represent the apostles, were present. We see this as the Holy Spirit comes to Pentecost. We see them present here with the Samaritans, a group of people that culturally and historically opposed the Jews. They were not aligning, they would not align themselves with the Jews, but the Holy Spirit came to make one church, one family, one gospel. Peter will also be there when the Holy Spirit comes to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. So while this is descriptive, this is actually what happened, I do not believe that this is prescriptive, that an apostle needs to be everywhere when a person receives the Holy Spirit. Yet every type of person on earth represented through the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles already had the Spirit come when the apostles were present. And yet it is the Holy Spirit that bonds us together as a church. Like, there, look around real quick. Just look at the people in this room. Like, you know, turn your head exorcist style. Okay. Um, There are people in this room I absolutely love, and I have no idea why apart from the Holy Spirit unifying us. That's what does it. 
And the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit whose main objective is to point to Christ in all things, He is what connects believers from all over the world, not just that we acknowledge the same God, but are indwelled and sealed by the same God, the Holy Spirit. So you have this miraculous moment where the laying on of hands of the apostles, the identifying these Samaritans with God's forgiveness and holy church is symbolized by the apostles. And Simon, this guy who has believed and been baptized, witnesses this. And what does he do? Let's keep reading. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was giving on, given at the laying on of hand, the apostles' hands, he offered them money, and he said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Wow, this is capitalism privilege right here. <sighs> Simon saw the power of God through the apostles and wanted to purchase it. I want that. Throw some money at it. The million-dollar man. Anyone understand that reference? I didn't say the six million. I'm talking about Ted DiBiase, all right? He said, everyone has a price. Not true. God cannot be bought. And Simon showing off his heart and his priorities is making known that his belief in baptism really were not saving faith or identification with Jesus. He, like far too many people, wanted what he could get from God rather than God himself. If you are stoked about heaven because you think you're going to get to skydive without a parachute, let me ruin that for you. Heaven is the place where Jesus is, and I'm with him. And that's who I want to be with. That's who I want to be around. Man, I miss people that I have lost, but no one gets ahead of the fact that I'll get to see my Savior face to face. So you look at this passage with Simon, and you may say, Tim, that's so judgmental. You don't know Simon's heart. You're right. I don't. But I believe the word of God, and I read ahead. But before we get there, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe Simon wanted this power so everyone around him could receive the Holy Spirit, so everyone around him could be sealed with the Spirit, so their salvation could be secure. I want my friends to know Jesus, but do I really give up anything to want them to see them become Christians? Like, am I willing to give up my time? Am I willing to even broach the subject, which might be a very awkward conversation? Before COVID, there were two things you don't talk about. Remember this? Politics and religion. Well, most people didn't get the memo on the politics since COVID. But when we talk about Jesus, let me tell you something. We're not talking about religion when we discuss a relationship with Jesus. We're talking about history. We're talking about a historical man who proved he was more than a man who had a historical death on a cross. And check it, a historical resurrection from the dead. Yeah, I said historical. Come back next week and you'll find out how. Historical. So maybe Simon just really wanted to see his friends saved. Well, again, the problem with this is what happens next. Whenever you read ahead, often your assumptions about Scripture get changed. Verse 20, Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. This sounds like a great worship song, doesn't it? Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart, for I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. Direct translation, Matthew Irmas, to hell with your money and with you is what Peter says. Those are strong words. 
But Peter is defending the fact that God is not like us, nor can he be swayed or bribed, nor can his gifts be bought or received through any means but by grace through faith in Christ. I don't know that I need to defend my stance anymore on Simon's belief that it was counterfeit, but look at how Peter not only says to hell with him, but says he has no part or share in this ministry because his heart is not right before God and he should repent and pray that the Lord may forgive him of this wickedness because Peter, an apostle led by the Holy Spirit, sees that Simon is full of bitterness and captive to sin. Peter, the same apostle who said to Sapphira after her husband had died and she didn't know, hey, the men who carried your, fa- your husband away are now at the door to take you away, and then she dropped dead. I'm going to go with the Holy Spirit taught Peter some things. And none of what Peter says sounds like how you would talk to a redeemed believer. None of that sounds like what an apostle would say to a brother. And what we see is Luke describing what actually happened, which was that there was this man who loved attention and, like every narcissist, had a Messiah complex. More on that in a moment. Then Simon answered, verse 24, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Simon then responds to Peter, asking him to pray for him, that none of these things would happen. And some argue or hope that this was repentance, but repentance doesn't consist of an earthly mediator. Let me let that sit. You don't need someone else to do something for you in your relationship with God. No matter how much you've heard a priest say this, this is not how it works according to the Bible. Our repentance comes from a conviction of knowing our sin has separated us from God. And the need we have to find our salvation and identity in Jesus Christ who did for us what we were unable to do for ourselves. Now, Simon, we don't hear anything about him after this passage. And there are extra biblical texts, and some of this might be legend, but we start to kind of get to know possibly what Simon ended up doing. Many think that he was the one who began the cult known as Gnosticism. Legend has it that his Messiah complex went so deep as to attempt to prove himself he was buried alive like Chris Angel with the proclamation that he would then rise from the dead on the third day. And guess what? He didn't. He was immortalized by being the reason for the word simony, which means to attempt to purchase spiritual gain through the use of monetary means. And he wasn't an example of grace and trust in the Lord, even though he believed and was baptized, because he could not put his hope in Christ. But he is an example. He is a warning for us today to not miss the point of the gospel and to not follow charisma rather than the Christ, because our lives are far too precious to be wasted worshiping man and miss out on the Messiah. And we see this example of Simon as the one that doesn't make us like a Pharisee in the parable with the tax collector, where we'll say something like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like him. But may the Lord show us where we have a bit of want to be worshipped ourselves, or want to worship creation rather than Jesus. And may we repent. May we change direction and follow the one who can handle the weight of our identity and sin that come with us. Verse 25, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. We see the shift. 
And the gospel is now changing hearts and lives of both Jews and Samaritans and Peter and John, two of the apostles. And this is the story, which is far from done. We get to continue to read and of God establishing the movement of his people through the movement of the gospel message. It's going to be for all types of people, over all types of contexts, where all types of counterfeit religion and belief will have to be opposed through the truth of the message of the gospel. Here's here's what I want to leave us with, which means there's only 25 more minutes in the sermon. I'm just kidding. Church, our salvation, if you have called unto the Lord, is a gift. And it is in that gift, the residual effect tends to lessen our need to exaggerate, to puff ourselves up, The salvation we have received through faith ought to give us the courage to be real about our sin before God and before others. We ought to want to point people to Christ rather than us. God opposes the proud and gives mercy to the humble, and so I praise God when he gives me opportunities not to show how humble I am. I'm not. But to respond in a way that exalts Jesus Christ rather than me. Worship team, you can come on up. Many years ago, Christian professor Stuart Black of the University of Edinburgh in England was listening to his students as they presented oral readings. When one man rose to begin his presentation, he held his book in the wrong hand. The professor thundered, dad voice, get ready, take your book in your right hand and be seated. At this harsh rebuke, the student held up his right arm and he didn't have a right hand. The other students shifted uneasily in their chairs. For a moment, the professor hesitated. Then he made his way to the student, put his arm around him, and with tears streaming from his eyes, he said, I never knew about it. Please, will you forgive me? His humble apology made a lasting effect on this young man. This story was told sometime later in a large gathering of believers, and at the close of the meeting, a man came forward, turned to the crowd, raised his right arm, and it ended at the wrist, and he said, I was that student. Professor Black led me to Christ, but he never could have done it if he had not made the wrong right. Church, we're far too focused on attempting to present a less realistic version of ourselves to the world around us. God doesn't need us to look good to make him look good. He saves messed up people and transforms us as trophies of grace and his continued work of life change in his church where he gets all the credit and glory and praise. Let's pray. Father, I uh, thank you that that's over with. (laughs) But Lord, I, I praise you and I ask that you would use that passage of scripture and, and my commentary on it to do, some, do a work in the hearts of people here. I pray that men and women and children would want Jesus more because of the work of your spirit above all else. God, I pray that you would use what we learned today to change us, to transform us, to grow us, to look more like Jesus. And if we are yet to repent, if we're yet to turn over 
our lives to you, Lord. I pray that you draw us to our, to, you would draw us to you in spite of us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.